This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best coaches in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and of course, tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show I wish I had a decade ago. Now, this show is about you. So we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. And if you're new to the show, but you want to learn more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out the toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got the fundamentals of things like dating, attraction, body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, all the fundamentals and things that most people overlook. We've also got live training boot camps running every single week here in California and Los Angeles. Details at theartofcharm.com or give us a call here in the office, 888 7177. I'm looking forward to meeting all you guys here at The Art of Charm. Now today, we've got Seth Godin. A lot of you have heard of him, I'm sure. He's the author of 17 books, and we're going to talk about why the creative process doesn't really matter at all, why quitting is not the same thing as failing, something called the dip and how we can actually use it to our advantage, how it feels to have your company acquired, how to be generous in a risky way every single day and win as a result, and why the trust economy is an abundance economy and why this is actually really great for us. So enjoy this one with Seth Godin. So you're the author of 17 books. That's a lot of books. First of all, I think a lot of authors, they feel like I have so much to write, I have so much to write. And I know a lot of people that write a lot. One of my good friends is Neil Strauss and he's got a really interesting creative process. But as I've found just from talking with authors that I know, creative processes are as different as the books themselves. Not only me, but a lot of the people listening are wondering, how do you, what does your creative process look like? And I know that's a vague slash giantly open question, but if you've created 17 books, obviously you've got a pretty efficient creative process, if nothing else. I guess the first thing I'd say is thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you. I know it's thankless and difficult to run a show like this, so I want to say uh, I appreciate it for one. Thank you. The next thing I'd say is, 17 books isn't a lot of books if it's your life's work. I mean, there are people with 17 kids. That's a lot more difficult than 17 books. <laughs> sure. So I've been dripping them out over time. I think but that's they, how it works with kids, too. They exactly. drip them out over time. Yeah. At least the uh, other spouse does. The real answer to your question is it doesn't matter. That the differences in creative process are irrelevant and people who feel stuck or want to achieve more should not even ask the question. And the reason is... It's a distraction. The kind of pencil someone uses, the way that they get started or finish their work, it's all a distraction. We don't ask uh, someone who, end, who finishes the Boston Marathon how they did it. We know how they did it. What they did was they figured out where to put the tired, that everyone who runs the Boston Marathon gets tired, but the people who finish are people who figure out where to put the tired and run anyway. You know, every day that we're doing our best work, is a day that it might be easier to hide from our best work and it might be easier to distract ourselves. And so whatever method you come up with to get through those things is yours and I think that's great. I'm not hiding my method from people. I'm sort of pleased at the way I've structured it, but it's not relevant. Okay, 
Excellent. So it's kind of like somebody who works out. It, it matters if you want to be the most efficient person at doing it, but still the guy who goes to the gym six days a week, even if he's not doing everything perfectly or up to the latest science, is probably going to be in decent shape. Yeah, I mean, the goal isn't to get from five books to 17 books. The goal is to get from nothing to one. And once you get from nothing to one, once you figure out how to have you know the third episode of your podcast or you figure out how to get 10 people to come hear you give a speech or you figure out how to get some pieces into an art show, after that, it's about improving your method. But most of the people who are stuck aren't that far. They're stuck because they see a cliff in front of them. They see a chasm. And my argument is there's no such thing as writer's block. There's just an excuse. Sure. Okay. That's an interesting concept, right? Because writer's block aside, a lot of people think, well, you know, I need to learn from the greatest because if I don't learn from the greatest, I'm only going to be mediocre. And, you know, that's people's greatest fear. But at the same time, that's kind of like saying, I don't want to learn how to golf with a regular golf instructor. I can only learn from Tiger Woods. And if I can't learn from Tiger Woods, well, then I'm just not going to bother learning how to golf. I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs do the same thing. They think, I've got to figure out how to do this the most efficient way, the best way possible. Meanwhile, they have no business. Yeah, I think you, I think you nailed it. How did you become, you know, most people would consider you great at what you do. How did you become great and how do you stay that way? I mean, for you personally, like you said before, it doesn't matter, right? The path is different for everyone. Do you feel like you put your pants on one leg at a time? I mean, I would imagine. What did you do differently that everybody else who's not doing anything or not doing as well has done? What, did you, what have you done that they haven't or not done that they have? So just to be clear, my high school English teacher wrote in my yearbook that I was never going to amount to anything. Wow. So it's not like I started big, right? <laughs> I think that the two things that I would point out are, one, I was willing to be bad at it before I was good at it. And I think that's true for just about everyone I know who's succeeded. And second, I got rejected a lot. I mean, 800 rejections in a row my first year in the book business. And I started to look forward to rejections as a chance to learn and also as a way to understand that they were one step closer uh, to being yeses. That's really interesting that you're a teacher. I mean, well, have you? Have you gone back and been like, see, I've got 17 books. I mean, it might be too late for that, right? I dedicated one of my books to her. Did you really? Oh, that's, do you know if she ever saw it? Um, yeah, before I was an author, I was a book packager, and I did 120 books on almost every imaginable topic. Uh, so I was doing a book a month for 10 years, so there were lots of chances to dedicate books to people. I dedicated a book to her and heard from her and her husband shortly thereafter. It was nice. You know, she always meant well. Yeah, I guess, well, she's probably sitting there patting herself on the back for writing that nasty comment in your yearbook because it, it spurned you to action and lit a fire under your butt that got you where you are today. There you go. <laughs> um, you you actually mentioned in one of your books that quitting is not the same as failing. That's such a loaded statement, and I guess without context, it can mean a lot of things, but you sort of mentioned it before, and a lot of people think that they can't fail. They shouldn't fail. Doing what they're trying to do needs to succeed, and especially I'm in San Francisco, so a lot of people here, it's kind of trendy almost to fail, but it's definitely not really trendy or fun for anyone to quit. I think there's all these mottos like fail faster and everything like that, but it's sort of yet to make its way out maybe to the other coast. 
or maybe in other businesses as well. And it's, it's actually a really liberating way to look at your business if you're not afraid to fail. But I mean, where do you stand on this? You know, it seems like you write a lot about rejection, failure as getting you closer to the goal. How do we know that that's the case other than a few people's personal experience? I mean, aren't we outliers if we failed a lot and got successful? Aren't there people who just fail and continue to fail? Well, I wrote a whole book about quitting, the first book ever about quitting called The Dip. And I wrote it for a very specific semantic reason. And that is that people associate quitting with failing. And so we don't quit and we end up becoming wandering generalities because if you're doing lots and lots of things, thinking you're never supposed to quit, you're going to be mediocre at a lot of stuff. In the world of the internet, where everything is a click away, we don't buy anything that's mediocre if we have a choice. We don't interact with anyone. We don't follow anyone. We don't listen to anyone who's mediocre. Why would we? That what we seek out is the best in the world. There are lots of ways to define best in the world. We don't have to go into that. But the point is, the only way you can be the best in the world at anything is by quitting everything else. And that means that you don't start something unless you're willing to commit to either going at it until it really doesn't work or finishing and being the best in the world. Those are the only two options. So to join the gym in December, knowing you're going to quit in February is stupid. To go on a diet for the 18th time without coming up with a new structure as to why that diet's going to work is a waste of your time and energy. That companies that launch a new product and say, well, we'll fool around with it for a little while and see what happens are going to fail. Whereas companies that burn their boats and commit to something are more likely to become the best in the world. So my argument about quitting is this. Figure out before you start under what circumstances you will quit and only quit under those circumstances. But if those circumstances arise, you must quit. So if you're an entrepreneur and you allocate $10,000 to get your thing going and you get to $10,000 and it's still not going, you're not allowed to then say, oh, now I'll go mortgage my house. That's a situational decision. You should have been smart enough to make the decision when you started. So I wanted to just make it so that we could have honest mature conversations that quitting is an okay thing because people quit all the time. They just quit poorly. That's different than failing. Failing is divided into two categories. There is the you are a failure, the failing of the human. That doesn't happen very often. Right. There's right. also the failure of, oh, this time it didn't work. And the goal of the artist and the entrepreneur and the person who wants to make stuff worth doing is if I fail more than you, I win. Because every time I fail, if I get to stay in the game, I learn something that you didn't learn. I gained a skill that you don't have. And that the person who fails the most but can stay in the game will do the best. And, you know, just last week, Amazon paid a billion dollars for Twitch. Twitch was the outgrowth of a company that was a complete failure. That Justin TV tried something that didn't work and Twitch was the thing they shifted to. So would you say the guys who started that company are a failure because the thing they started with didn't work? No. What you, we have to do is celebrate those people for being smart enough about knowing when to quit one thing and embrace something else on their quest to being the best in the world. Interesting. And I think a lot of people, they, they fail to see this. And I read The Dip a long time ago. And for me, it was really good timing because that dip can be really long. And if you don't know it exists, it just looks like failure. 
Correct. Can we explain a little bit about what that is for maybe a lot of the people listening have not read the dip, they don't know what it is. Um, I think you'll do a better job of it than I. Simple example. Anyone who wants to go through college and get into med school tends to be a pre-med, which means you have to take organic chemistry. And organic chemistry is, of course, designed to weed out people who aren't going to work hard enough to become doctors. Now, there's no reason for organic chemistry to be that difficult. They just made it the dip. So some people get through it and end up becoming doctors, and some people quit. Well, understanding that the dip is there makes it easier to get through. Because you're saying to yourself when you're two-thirds of the way through organic chemistry, they did this on purpose. It's what makes being a doctor scarce is that this part is hard. That if you can prepare for that gulf between where all the amateurs are and the other end where the few professionals come out, then you go in knowing it's there and you are more likely to be able to dance with it and embrace it and overcome it. Perfect. And and that makes a lot of sense. And I think especially, of course, for entrepreneurs, but it goes with any skill, really. Even when I started to learn Chinese, I, I remember looking up after a while and going, man, this is really hard. But since I've learned four other languages, I know that I'm in the dip. I'm at the point where I can't say a whole lot. I can't read a whole lot. It's really hard. It's unrelenting. I'm memorizing a lot of symbols. It's not really useful. It's not really fun. But I also know that just around that corner, whenever that happens to come about, I'm through the dip and I can start speaking. I can understand a lot. I can read a bunch more. And all these things that I learned that didn't have any apparent function at that time start to come together and I go, oh, yeah, now I can sort of read that book because I know Bingo. all these little pieces. Yes. I know it's going to be fun. I know it's going to be cool. So I keep at it. Whereas a lot of people would go, screw this. I don't really need Chinese. Well said. So if you look at the statistics for massive online courses, 98% of the people who start one of these courses do not finish. That's a lot. Holy cow. And the reason is simple, because it's fun to start a course and it's hard to finish one. Right. Yeah. It's exciting in the beginning. Then once that wears off, you go, mm, I don't know about this. And yep. I think a lot of people do that, not just in their business, but even in relationships, there's a dip, right? Dating and, and personal relationships. People go, this is fun, this is exciting, and then you do all this stuff and it starts to become a little bit routine, and even at your, your best efforts, it starts to happen, and then eventually you go, oh, well, you know, we don't really have like a solid connection, marriage, family type thing, but it's also not that exciting anymore. Maybe I should just move on to something else. And I think mature people who can handle mature relationships realize that relationships evolve and that there might even be a dip. Now, it's less of a pronounced dip, and it doesn't always happen. It's not like a learned Chinese dip, but it's the same thing in relationships, and it's certainly the same thing in business. I mean, every time we take a great step forward or finally you know, look back on a big accomplishment or a launch or something at the Art of Charm, we go, I think we're kind of out of the dip. But then you realize, oh, you're just in maybe a different type of dip, almost. You're in a different phase of it. Uh, but it, it's really easy to quit at any phase of business, especially when you're in the real dip, which is you're not making any money. You're eating ramen noodles when you can afford them. Your house is dirty and in a dangerous area. Your friends think you're stupid. All the other people that you used to work with are making a ton of money and wondering why you quit, etc. It makes a lot of sense to stay in there, but only if you know that it exists. Exactly. And that it's not a dead end. You know, I've gotten 
some really nice emails over the years. And one category that has surprised me are people who read the dip and said it, it saved their marriage. And that's not why I wrote it, but it's, it's wonderful to hear that. And in the case of the entrepreneur, the lesson of the dip is that not everything is a dip. Some things are a cul-de-sac, a dead end, something that will never get better. Emphysema is a cul-de-sac. You don't tough your way through it and then you're fine. It's a chronic degenerative disease. The idea of the entrepreneur is if people have been in your shoes before you and come out the other end, it's way more likely that you're in a dip than if you are the person who's nearly just dreaming and saying, I'm going to be the first person to ever do this, right? And yes, we need people who do things for the first time. We need people who confound all critics and figure out how to do something that has never happened before. But it doesn't have to be you. And that if you're starting out as an entrepreneur, it makes a lot more sense to find a process, a method, a path that has been trodden before you and see that dip. So when I started in the book business as a book packager and had my 800 rejections in a row, it was hard, but I knew other people had gotten through it. I knew that at the other end, there was a business. That made it more logical to stick with it. Perfect. Yeah, of course. And how did you discover this in the first place? Was it observing other people or was it observing yourself? No, it was observing other people. It was saying, oh, I see how John Boswell ended up being able to make a living as a book packager. And I went to see John Boswell. And I said, John, this is where I am. This is where you are. What's in between these two things? And you'd be amazed at how often people are happy to answer that question for you. Wow. Yeah, that's not a bad idea. I suppose, you know, it's easy to say, well, you're Seth Godin. You can ask people that. I wasn't Seth Godin then, I promise you. You were Seth Godin, English student, right? Back then. Never going to make it, Seth Godin. Speaking of dips and differentiation and failing and and things like that, I mean, you just had Squidoo acquired by Hubpages, so congratulations on that. Well, we tried to do what was best for our users, and I I hope we did. Yeah, well, I guess time will tell, right? Nothing... Too late now. No, I don't know. I guess we'll we'll see. And it, but I mean, you went through that process, that shift as well. I mean, did you when you started Squidoo? How how much of an advanced sort of warning system did you have that this was going to be something successful slash get acquired? I mean, how do you even choose the projects that you work on? Is probably the root of that question. I think that it changes over time. For eight years, I struggled on the edge of bankruptcy as an entrepreneur. For me, in those cycles, the most important thing was to be able to keep doing it, to not end up as a bank teller, to not get stuck. Over time, because I was there when the internet took off and because I kept at it, it was no longer a matter of survival. And so then you say, well, what are the projects worth doing? In the case of Squidoo, we didn't build it to sell it. If we had, we would have sold it five years ago quite successfully. We built it because I wanted to figure out how to build a platform that would pay people for their work, and I wanted to figure out how to raise as much money for charity as I could. Also, mostly, there were a few people I really wanted to work with, but I couldn't work with them if I didn't have a project. So for all those non-ordinary reasons, I started this company, and the business plan was dramatically wrong. I was off on our revenue per user by a factor of 100 which you don't get to be that wrong very often, but I was. But we stuck with it because I had a great team and because it was a journey that we felt was worth doing. And as we kept doing it, 
you know, you learn stuff and things evolve and people move on and people come in and you try to do things differently and on and on. And after uh, almost a decade, the team said, you know, we can probably serve our users better if we consolidate platforms and move forward in a different way. So we did. Excellent. How do you feel having had a business acquired? Do you feel like, okay, that's done? Is it like publishing a book? Well, I've done it before. You know, the first time it happens, it's bizarre because everyone around you is really happy and you feel like a relative of yours just passed away. And that's a weird feeling. So the second time around, I went in with my eyes open. And in this case, because the focus has always been what's best for our charities, what's best for our users, it was a lot easier because my ego wasn't the point. Right. Sure. Speaking of focusing on the users, I mean, a lot of people right now are listening and they're probably like, oh, yeah, sure. You focus on the users. You just wanted to have an exit. I mean, it for me, it, and looking at a business and looking, knowing what I know from just Wall Street and then coming to San Francisco, a lot of people are naturally only going to be focused on the dollars. But aside from just altruistic you know, purposes here, wh what makes you want to focus on what's best for the customers versus damn, we could have gotten a lot more money for this. I mean, how do you keep your eyes on that prize? Well, the first thing I would say, because I think it's really useful to anyone who wants to make stuff, is to think back to that priceless scene in the Woody Allen movie, I think it was Manhattan, in which there's this guy pontificating in front of the movie theater about Marshall McLuhan. And Woody Allen brings Marshall McLuhan into the scene and says, and the guy walks over to the blowhard and says, you know nothing of my work. If people are welcome to say anything they want about the choices you make or the choices I make, and to which I would respond to them, you're totally entitled, but I have to tell you, I think you know nothing of my work. That if you read my 5,500 blog posts and 17 books and watch what I've done and watch what I've, and how I've done it, you can say anything you want about how I make my choices, but I think my work stands for itself. But the second half of that is to talk to the people who say that they're in this for the money. What generally happens to those people is they end up making less money. That the whole Ayn Rand, selfish, what's best for me is best for everyone mindset doesn't turn out to work out very well very often. And that you're way more likely in the connection economy to, as my friend, late friend Zig Ziglar used to say, you can get everything you want if you help enough other people get what they want. And the only way to pull that off is to actually help other people get what they want. And if you can just keep obsessing about that very simple notion, if you are always the person who leaves an imbalance in the interaction, people will come back for more. And if enough people come back for more, the business part tends to take care of itself. Absolutely. I think it, you just kind of wrapped up uh, in large part the focus of the whole show. I mean, we've got 305 plus hours of audio and people who I think are bad business people say things like, why don't you charge for that? Are you stupid? And I say, no, I'm not stupid. It's a great way to get people to like and trust the Art of Charm as a company. And then a certain percentage of those people buy services and products from us that are worth, frankly, are priced much higher than I could charge for an hour of me talking, no matter who I'm talking with. And I think people don't really understand that. And some of that comes from things that I studied from you, of course, which are you know, help people get what they want, a la Zig Ziglar, or just create something that is so amazing that people can't ignore you. 
And that's what we've always tried to do here at The Art of Charm as well. And just be super consumer and super customer focused. And even just as sort of a lesson to people listening, even when I thought, wow, I am really getting screwed on this. You know, we are really bending over backwards for this customer. And, you know, we could easily take the other way out and come out with a little bit of dough. I've always taken the high road on that and given the customer what they need slash what, what is right. And it has never been something that I've regretted. In fact, even when a guy wanted a refund and was being quite unreasonable about a certain element of something, this is years ago, so the details are sketchy, it reminded me, you know what, just do this, do what's right, do what you know you said you were going to do under any circumstances. And then that guy, a year or two later, ended up sending his own brother back through our program because he said, it wasn't right for me, and I realized I was kind of being unreasonable back then, but I think it's right for my brother. And he actually paid for his brother. And so I thought, wow, that never would have happened. We would have ended up with negative reviews and bad blood and all this stuff and bad karma or whatever you want to call it. And instead, we ended up with another customer who then ended up referring other people years later down the line as well. So I agree with you. It doesn't always work tangibly like that. But I do agree. I think if you build something that is built to be as useful, as great as possible for the people that are designed to use it, you're right. I think it does take care of itself. And I think a lot of people who are only focused on the dollar end up making less money in the end. And you've even written in one of your books, the most successful givers aren't doing it because they're being told to. They do it because doing it is fun and it gives them joy. And I think if you're if you're really building something that you love and you're creating something that's truly amazing, then that sort of stands for itself. And as long as you're not eating rice and beans for the rest of your life, it's worth the sacrifice. Because at the end, in the end, it's not really a sacrifice at all. Even if you end up eating rice and beans for the rest of your life, if you can do that while having a life of service that where you are creating work that you are proud of, that's probably better if you ask someone who's 75 than eating filet mignon every night but leaving behind nobody who would miss you if you were gone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's harder, though, when you're 25 and you're actually eating rice and beans. I ate rice and beans for a really long time. And the, the number of things I chose not to do to avoid that, every single one of them is something I would do again. It's so easy, in your case, to remember the angry customer. It's also easy to remember the opportunities not taken and the choices not made. And I just don't know people who regret having turned down the less ethical thing. They just don't. They go on and they say, I'm really proud that I didn't do that. They don't say, boy, I really should have compromised that day. Yeah, no, you're right. I haven't heard from too many people that they think that way. Absolutely. Speaking of giving, I mean, in, back in 2008, you actually announced something called the six-month alternative MBA. And it was basically... What did you get, like 50,000 people applied or something? Am I exaggerating? Yes, you're exaggerating. Okay. 375 finished applications. The application wasn't easy. I picked 25 of those people who seemed interesting. They came to my office for the day. They all met each other, and then I had them interview each other. And at the end of all of them talking to all of each other, I had them rank, who would you like to be in this program with? And it turned out that the same nine people's names came up over and over again. So those nine people got in and we sat in my office every day for six months for eight or 10 hours a day and it was free and it was one of the best things I ever did. 
now I'm looking at my notes again. F- 48,000 people looked at the post, not applied. That would be... Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that would, you would still be looking at applications, Seth. What are those people up to now? I mean, what are they doing? You, I assume you have a great little alumni group of people that spent that much time together. They either are in close touch or they can't stand each other. Uh, we love each other, all of us. It's been five years. We have one best-selling author, one successful coach, one successful entrepreneur, two. One guy owns uh, is a real estate investor and a co-working space. We have someone who's building a new technology platform. We have a successful folk singer in Atlanta. We have, I mean, it goes on. But we all say that it changed us. And that really was represented a shift for me. I've been a teacher my whole life. I grew up at a summer camp in Canada where I first started teaching. And what I realized, even though I have been an entrepreneur, I have built companies, I have helped my employees become millionaires, I realized that deep down I am a teacher. And when I get a chance to teach, I take it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, are you ever going to offer anything like that in the future? Well, I had one five weeks ago that lasted for a very intense week. That was extraordinary. The best one on a daily basis ever. And I just posted that I'm hiring a couple paid interns. So that's not quite the same, but similar. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I keep doing them. I'm not, I don't think it's likely that I'm going to do one that lasts six months again. That was an unreasonable commitment on my part, but uh, you never know. I can imagine at some point during that six months, did you invent a curriculum before that? Or were you kind of like, it's going to take me six months to brain dump. I mean, it seems like an extraordinary undertaking to invent a six-month curriculum. Yeah, it was, um, it was both. I had two weeks locked knowing that I could do that 20, 30 more times easy, but without actually doing it, I wanted to see what would happen. And what became clear was we needed to spend about a third of our time on the tactics of what it is to understand an MBA, sunk costs, decision-making models, uh, equity, things like that. But the other two-thirds of the time, most of the time, was about engaging in a conversation internally about what you want and do you dare uh, trust yourself to go do it. That the biggest learnings for me and for the team were the things that led to my book, Lynchpin, which is all about the fear that sabotages our best work. I would imagine that 90% of the people who are listening to this podcast uh, know everything you and I know tactically, but the podcast is either a way to reassure them or for them to hide. And that what they really need to figure out how to do is to take what they know, to take what they're capable of, and put it in the world and fail, as opposed to just practicing more. Sure. Well, how do you propose that people get there? Because we talk about that a lot at AOC, right? Go out, fail, learn, get that experience. It can be really difficult for someone who is just paralyzed with that fear, failure in the first place. Right. And so, you know, there are many, many glib, quotable uh, answers here, but here's mine. That person needs to figure out how to be generous in a risky way every day. Not figure out how to make money, but figure out how to be in front of a customer or in front of an audience doing a generous thing every day. That if you do that, and that's why I love a personal blog so much or a podcast, if you do that every day, 
knowing that you could fail at it, knowing that you're not doing it for the money, but just to see what you can give away, then you start down this path. Because then the question isn't, should I do it? It's, can I do it more? And as we get into the habit of doing it more, then we're on our way. Why is that the key? I mean, it seems like, think about this, like if I'm trying to start a business, so my goal is to be as generous as I can in a risky way every day. Am I sitting down and asking myself questions about how that can be done? Or is your suggestion just go out and try different ways of doing that, even though failure is inevitable? Super simple example. Guy sells in-ground swimming pools. Now, if you've ever bought an in-ground swimming pool, I haven't. Learn that it's filled with pitfalls and rip-off artists. It's like buying a used car, but worse, often. So this guy decides to blog every single secret he knows of the industry that he has been in. Every single thing that they tell you that's not true, every single way that you can get ripped off on his blog over and over and over again. Complete transparency with high specificity. Not asking for any money, no $98 PDFs, no sell pages, just here's everything I know. Now here's the question. After you've done that for enough time, do you think it's easier or harder to make a living as a pool salesperson? Sure, it's actually easier because as long as you're an ethical pool salesperson. Right, I mean, who who else are you going to trust? You're going to trust the guy who just told you every secret of how everyone else is ripping you off. So his business went through the roof because got into the pool business now to serve his customers, not to make a profit. And it turns out that if you can serve enough people, right? It, serving people doesn't mean giving them a discount. Serving people means treating them with respect. Serving people means telling them a story that they need to hear. It means building a brand that's true, that doesn't disappoint people. It means being missed when you're gone. Absolutely. Wow, that's great. And, and it's good to hear this. I'm feeling pretty good about And It's really hard when you run a business, you can start to really kick yourself like, oh, I saw this competitor do this. And, you know, oh, man, he's really crushing it doing that. But you just don't want to do it. And you feel at some point like, oh, you're like an artist that's just stubborn about his work. And I agree with that, especially when it comes to my show. I'm pretty unrelenting. But it does feel good to have have someone like you tell me we're doing the right thing. Uh, that's for damn sure. I'd like to think you're doing the right thing from a moral point of view, but you're also doing the right thing from an MBA economics point of view because we don't live in a scarcity economy anymore. We live in an abundant economy, an economy of attention and trust. And the thing about attention and trust, they're different than wax and leather. Wax and leather, if everyone comes to your factory and takes a free sample of wax and a free sample of leather, you're going to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. But if everyone comes to the place where you make ideas – and takes a free sample of your idea, you're going to be rich. And that's because you're gaining attention and gaining trust. If the game that's being played, if the race is on to see who can be the most trusted and who can get, earn the most attention, it's pretty clear that you get there by doing things that your mom would be proud of. Perfect. This is really interesting material here because you get your gut reaction that sort of leads you in this direction, but then you look at other examples and you look at what you think you know and what you think you see in business and it's really it can be really hard to stay on the straight and narrow whether you're an entrepreneur or whether you work for someone else and you just see somebody you know the jerk the office jerk getting ahead or you know you feel like oh these customers are always crawling up my craw you got something stuck in there or you know you're just a even if you're just a student still and you're seeing people getting 
what you think is an edge, not doing the right thing, not creating something that serves others. And I think it's it's great to hear this. It's very reassuring as well. But how should we think about success? I mean, speaking of rice and beans and millionaires, how do we think about success in, in a healthy way? Is this long-term marathon with milestones or is this kind of a, a river that sucks us into its current no matter what? Well, I think success is up to the person who is seeking it. It's not up to me. If you talk to people who have been through this, their definition of success tends to be different than the 23-year-old aggressive business card-wielding guy who just arrived in Silicon Valley. Well, what does that tell you, right? That over time, people change their definition of success and what matters to them. I think it's up to each of us to figure out our answer to that question. But for me, it's, am I proud of this? Do I want to put my name on this? Is this something I'm glad I did? I think that's a pretty good way to approach it. Excellent. Is there anything that I haven't asked you or something that you want to leave us with? Most people are busy clicking on to the next thing already. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if, not you, but if the person who's listening to this understands that that constant clicking to the next thing might be the reason that you're feeling incomplete and that maybe what we ought to be doing is spending less time clicking to the next thing and more time sitting with this one to do it right. Excellent. Great advice there for, for any industry and anybody in any position, I would say. And seldom can you say that about, about really anything, for that matter. And I really appreciate your time. I know people here really appreciate your time. And they've seen a lot of your work, or maybe they haven't. We're going to link up the dip, of course, in the show notes, as well as a handful of other books, and including Lynchpin and some of the things that we've mentioned here. And I really appreciate you coming by. I really appreciate your wisdom. And I think everyone appreciates your contribution as well. Well, the same to you. And thanks for taking the time. Go make a ruckus. You got it. Thanks, Bye. Seth. All right, there you have it. Seth Godin, author of 17 books. It is interesting. The creative process totally doesn't matter. It's just about getting there, one foot in front of the other. Sure, some people are more efficient with it, but really, at the end of the day, you don't have to be the best at it. And of course, quitting, not the same thing as failing. The dip and how we use it to our advantage, thought that was fascinating. And I find myself just as an entrepreneur myself, and in every phase of my life, from learning Chinese to relationships to business, in the dip and in and out of the dip, interesting that the key, according to Seth, is to be generous every day in a risky way and win as a result. And I think that really matches really, really well with the art of charm business model and the value that we provide or try to provide to everybody every day. Then, of course, the trust economy, that being an abundance economy and why that's really great for us, I think that's so true. Now that we can actually make a living from ideas and the trust and value that we bring to others. We don't have to worry about running out. And that is what makes business today so exciting. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Of course, show feedback and guest suggestions can go right to me, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. We rely on you guys to keep our finger on the pulse. So if you know someone who's a good fit for the show, let me know. Again, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. Bootcamp details also at theartofcharm.com. That's where you can find links to us on Twitter, Facebook, other social media. And you can add me on Facebook as well if you want to connect with me there. I love hearing from you guys. And if you're listening to this but you're not subscribed in iTunes or Stitcher, that needs to change. Getting our shows delivered free to your phone or computer while you sleep is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. So you can go to The Art of Charm and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, whatever app you're using. And we've got our iPhone apps as well. And I realize I'm asking you to do a million things here, but just do one. We've got our iPhone apps and our Android apps, theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android. Those things are free as well. 
So I hope you guys enjoyed this. I hope to hear from you, and I hope to see you guys here at the Art of Charm as well. Tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week. Go out there and get social and leave everything better than you found it. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com.